One of the things that I really enjoy doing as a dad is reading through with my kids uh, through the Chronicles of Narnia series. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. You may have read the books or seen the movies. Uh, I see some nodding of heads, so it doesn't sound like I'm talking about something foreign to you. Well, I, I read the, the book a little while ago to my kids, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And if you've read the book or seen the, the movie, you'll know that in there, the lion, Aslan, is the Christ figure, right? He he's pictures Christ. And there's a part in the story, in that first book, where Lucy, one of the four children, asks Mr. Beaver, you realize we're dealing with fantasy here, right? Um, she asks Mr. Beaver if Aslan is a safe lion, a, a tame lion. And Mr. Beaver replies, oh, no, he is not tame, but he is good. He is the king. And what struck me as I was reading through that book for the last time was at that point in the story when Lucy asked that question, the children have already sensed that Aslan is something wonderfully good. Because Lewis says that upon hearing the name Aslan, Lucy had the feeling as if she was just about to enter summer vacation. Which is to say, she knew Aslan was good. Because, I mean, if you're a kid, what could be better than embarking upon summer vacation, right? And yet Lucy still wanted this very good reality to be a tame one. That is, she wanted it to be something that she could control. She could put on a leash. She could lead it to where she wanted it to go. She wanted Aslan to be a tame lion because, well, entrusting yourself to something outside of your control, even if it is very, very good, can be very, very scary. And Lewis meant this to teach us something about how all of us can approach Christ. There's a hidden Lucy inside of us that wants Jesus to be a tame, domesticated, with a little leash on him, Christ, a Savior who will bring us a safe, domesticated, not-so-scary salvation. And that is where our passage comes in this morning. Because in this passage, Paul is sort of doing for us what Mr. Beaver did for Lucy, which is saying, oh, the Christ in whom you believe is exceedingly good, but he is not tame. You see, there were people in Colossae, the place to whom this letter was written, who would have admitted that Jesus was relatively important in some sense in which you needed him for your salvation. But they would have stopped short of saying, and at least living as though, he is fully God and the fullness of our salvation resides in him. They wouldn't have wanted to go that far. They would have reduced Christ, they would have admitted him, but reduced him down to something manageable. And Paul in this hymn is saying, no, no, no. Christ is bigger than you realize. He is not tame, but he is good. He is the king. 
Now, I've formatted this passage on the page for you so that you can see that it is also poetry. I believe that this is, and it's really scholars agree, that this was a hymn, perhaps even probably, written by Paul. Either way, Paul is using this in his theology to communicate something of, of Christ to them. This hymn was probably something they would have used in their corporate worship. So, you know, imagine getting a letter from a, a well-known pastor, and in that letter he then starts breaking out into a, you know, a worship song that we all know. That's kind of what's going on when they get to this point in the letter. And here is how this hymn goes. This is what the congregation would have sung. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by or in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, whether on earth, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for this beautiful truth about Christ. Lord, cause us to see the beauty of Christ in your word. It calls us to be impacted by your word and, and stop in our lives of too often diminishing Christ and instead hold him up to be of highest honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, after looking at that hymn and hearing me read it, do you see that Paul is saying there to the people of Colossae, this is the king, this Christ in whom you believe is so very, very good, but he is not tame. He is lifted up above anything on heaven and on earth. He is God and he is exactly what you need for salvation. You need him and only him and all of him for salvation. That's what he's doing. And now I've, I've formatted that passage for you, and um, I have some colors in there, so that you can see that what we're dealing with is two stanzas, two symmetrical poetic stanzas, and a bridge in between. Do, do you see that there? The first stanza goes from verses 15 through 16, and the second stanza is from 18b, the second half of 18, to verse 20. Now, we can divide it up this way because of parallel words and phrases that show the symmetry of these two sections. And I've color-coded those for you so you can see it, right? In the first section, it begins, he is. And then we have another, he is, in the second stanza. So we've we got to get a little bit of this just mechanics of this hymn out there at first so we can make sense of what's going on. And then we'll jump into the meat of it. And I, I pray that will be uh, impactful for you. But let's just spend a little bit of time recognizing the structure of what's going on here. You see those two he is phrases at the beginning of the first stanza and the beginning of the second stanza? Telling us that there's, there's this parallel uh, structure going on here. 
Note also the reference to firstborn. I think that's read there for you in the beginning of each stanza, right? And note also the cosmic language, right? The repeated phrase, all things. It's like a mantra that in this hymn. Did you catch how many times it's there? All things, all things, all things. And the reference to, you know, over heaven and earth, you know, this cosmic language. So there are identical words and phrases that mark out this parallel structure. See what's going on here is this, I think. Paul is putting two realities in parallel with each other in order to get us thinking about those realities side by side so they can, we can see how they are connected and how they are related. I mean, the parallel structure helps us see an analogy between two different realities that we might not realize are connected. I mean, that's what poetry does, right? Poetry uses images to connect spheres of life together. And Paul is connecting two realities about the person of Christ. He's putting them together so that together we can see that Christ is bigger and greater than we might have realized before. Okay, so what are these two realities that these two stanzas are bringing together and and getting us to think about together? Well, stanza one is about the glory of the eternal Son of God. Listen to this. The the glory of the eternal Son of God prior to and apart from the incarnation. Did you know that the Son of God existed before he took on human flesh? I, I think some Christians don't give that as much attention as they ought to. You know, as important as Christmas is for our understanding on our relationship with the Son of God, the Son of God had a life prior to and apart from Him taking on human flesh. And if we want to know the Son of God for who He is, which we all ought to, we have to recognize this about Him. And this is what the first stanza is about, the glory of the Son of God prior to and apart from the Incarnation. It begins, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And that means that he possesses the full glory of God. He didn't just take on human flesh to become worthy of glory. He just is worthy of glory because he is God. And as God, he is over everything, heaven and earth. Visible and visible. Every sphere of reality you could think of. Every way of dividing it up. He is Lord over all. One pastor I know paraphrased it like this. He says, the Son is the one from whom all things derive and the one to whom all things aspire. Which is to say he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. Realize this, friends. Every subatomic particle, every galaxy, every human emotion, every idea, he rules all of it. As one theologian put it, there is not one square inch of this whole created realm that the Son of God does not point to and say, mine. 
He is the Lord over all. Inherently, by his very nature, he didn't do anything to earn that status. He just is the Lord of all by virtue of being God. Now, stanza two, it's important to realize, is talking about the same person here. The eternal son of God. We haven't switched subjects. There's one person in this But stanza two is talking about what this person did, the Son of God did, in the course of redemptive history to bring us salvation. This is where Christmas comes into view, and Good Friday, and Easter, because the Son of God came down, and he suffered, and he died on the cross, and then he rose again. We see the second stanza, this is referring to Um, This incarnation, the redemptive life that Christ lived, because it talks about his reconciling death and that he is firstborn from the dead. This talks about the son's role in reconciliation, or we could say in the new creation. And not only that, verse 19 says that God is pleased for all the fullness of deity to dwell in him. Which I think there is a reference to the way in which the Holy Spirit comes to Christ in his resurrection with such a fullness that Paul can say that Christ in his resurrection has become life-giving spirit. Even though both stanzas in view have one person in view here. And that couldn't be more clear because of the structure of this hymn. The he is, that in verse 15 and 18, refer to the same person. But in the second stanza, we see that this person becomes something new. Without ceasing to be what he was, he became something new. Without ceasing to be God, he takes on human flesh and he suffers and he dies in order to become the one who is ruler over all in his resurrected glory. I said before that this hymn is trying to link these two realities together. And the linking point really there is the bridge. The bridge brings where these two realities come together. This is where the tension is the strongest. Because in the bridge, we see, it says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. In the bridge, we see that the one who is before all things, and in him all things hold together, is the one who is ruling over the church, who shed his blood for the church who intercedes for the church. He is head of the church, which means that we have access to him. We can come boldly to him without fearing his wrath. If we are part of the church, we are those for whom he died to save. Christ is then safe in that sense, but he is not tame. He is not safe in the sense that we can then use him for whatever purpose we concoct in our heads. We cannot put him on a leash and lead him about how we want to. No, he is bigger than we could possibly imagine. But this one who is bigger than we could possibly imagine is our personal head. He is our ruler. He is over us to lead us in love. 
Now, what does that mean for us? Well, let me give you three things, or three and a half. The last point is a bonus. But uh, three and a half things that we can get from this. Number one, we must share the gospel in such a way that it is crystal clear that Christ is God. We must share the gospel both to ourselves and to others because we must share the gospel to ourselves. That's the first person we share the gospel with every day is to, to remind ourselves of the gospel. When we remind ourselves of the gospel and when we share it with others, it must be in such a way that it is crystal clear that Christ is God. Now, you say, well, wait a minute, that's kind of obvious, right? I mean, if there's one thing that Christians agree on, it is that Christ is God because if you don't agree on it, you're not really a Christian according to Scripture. But it's one of those things in which we can so easily forget or not emphasize in the way that we should. It struck me recently that for years of teaching and preaching, I did not really emphasize that Christ had to be God. This is how I shared the gospel. Listen to it this, okay? I would say to people and say to myself, we deserve the wrath of God. This is because of how the first people have sinned against God and how we've all followed in his steps. And we deserve God's wrath. But God, in his infinite love, sent his Son, who had to be true humanity, who had to be just like us, so that he could receive the wrath of God in our place. And he also gives us his human righteousness, so we stand before God justified and accepted. Now, I would add in there somewhere that this Jesus is also God, but the point here that I want you to see is that he doesn't need to be for the story to make sense in the way that I shared it. And the way I presented salvation there is a little bit like a business deal, a transaction where, you know what, I get rid of the things that I don't want, and I get the things that I do want. Now, please understand, none of this is wrong per se. Because all the language that I use there is deeply biblical, right? I mean, the Bible uses economic language to talk about our salvation. Redemption means to be bought back, to be purchased. And the Bible uses transactional language. Justification is a transaction. But even though that language is biblical, if you share the gospel as I did, it could lead us astray because it's placed in the wrong larger story. It's placed in a story that is too man-centered. It's all about my problem and how do I find a solution to my problem. I think the correct larger story is much more God-centered. The larger story of our salvation that all the language must fit into and make sense with is that salvation is about God doing, God coming down to do what only God can do. That's what salvation is about. And and you know this if you've read the Bible. Because the Bible echoes this fundamental reality again and again that God saves. I mean, that's what the Bible is about. God saves. And he saves in such a way that when he does it, we can't help but recognize it was him. I mean, think of the Exodus. God used an old man to lead 2.5 million people out from the thumb of the world's most powerful dictator. Only God could do that. Only God could take people who've rebelled against him and turn them into from objects of his wrath to objects of his glory. Only God can do that. The Bible is about the fact that God saves. And when he saves, he does it in a way that no one could have expected 
but yet is so obviously his work. And this is what Paul is trying to teach us. Even when the Son of God takes on human flesh, even when he becomes something that is very much unlike what he was before, well, that is one who could bleed, one who could die, when he does that, he is simply revealing, he is still revealing his eternal nature. He is revealing who he is as the Son of God. And we see that truth in this hymn. Notice the first stanza, how it reveals his authority over all things. That is so very clear from verse 16. All things were created for him and for him. In him all things hold together. Verse 17. So we have that idea of all things, this cosmic rulership. But then notice that the same one comes down and brings us a salvation which reconciles all things to himself. Notice that repeated phrase again of heaven and earth. And through him to reconcile all things, whether on heaven or on earth. The point is that this Son of God is over all. That's his nature. He is therefore cosmic. So the redemption that he brings us can't help but also be of cosmic proportions. He is incapable of bringing us a salvation that has anything less than all things as its scope. He just can't do that because he is God. The way he saves reveals his divine nature. And that brings us to the next thing that we have to see, point number two. When Christ does bring us redemption, it is for his own glory. First and foremost, it is for his own glory. This is another thing that challenges our man-centered story. It's not ultimately about us. It's ultimately about the glory of God. And I think the way into this idea is to explore that word that it's repeated twice here, firstborn. You see that in the first stanza, verse 16, he's firstborn over all creation. And then at the end, he is firstborn from the dead. Paul is obviously trying to put these ideas in parallel, don't you think? The first reference to firstborn gets people a little tripped up sometimes. Because it could sound as if the eternal Son of God is actually born, right? If you've ever had Jehovah Witnesses knock at your door, they might have you turn to this passage and say, ha, look, the Son of God is born, so he's not eternal. And if we just take that at face value without any context, we may be scratching our heads a bit as to what that actually means. But you've got to read the next verse, which I think explains and qualifies what firstborn actually means. And the next verse is, all things are created through him. Now, put on your, your logic hats for just a second here. If all things, that is, all of created reality, and notice how the hymn emphasizes all in every way possible to, to conceive of all, if all things are created through the Son, all of created reality, that means that the Son of God cannot be part of created reality, right? Because then all things would not have been created through him. It would be all except for himself, which is not what this passage says. It emphasizes all meaning really all. Rather, what it means by firstborn is the idea of being preeminent over. That is, preeminent over all created reality. Being of highest rank 
or importance. That's what the word firstborn means functionally if we explore how it's used in the Old and New Testaments. Not, according, not meaning only birth order, but rank and importance. He is firstborn in the sense that he is first over all of creation. Now, in what sense is he first over all of creation? Well, the only proper response is in every conceivable sense. But I want to take just a second here and point out the particular way in which he is exalted over all of creation. And we'll see how this connects to the second reference to firstborn. There's a few steps here, but follow me. I think you can see this, and then you'll be blessed by this understanding. Think about this. We have in this passage this idea of being, you know, having authority over creation, and we also have the idea of image of God, right? We see those two themes in this passage. Would you agree? Think about where else those two themes appear in Scripture. Where do they come together in Scripture? Having authority over creation and image of God. Where else do you see them? Well, maybe you thought to yourself, Genesis 1, right? In Genesis 1, we see that God created humanity in what? In his image. And then he gave them authority over creation. So this passage then has a clear allusion to Genesis 1, to creation. It's meant to be read with Genesis 1 in view, where the first man and the first woman were created in God's image and then delegated authority over creation. Here's what I think is going on here, if we kind of put the pieces together. When God created man and woman in his own image to rule over creation, the image into which he created them is the image of his beloved son. Why? Because his son is the archetype, the original image of God. Because his son is the true and highest ruler over all creation. Or we can put it in human terms and think of this analogy. You know, imagine a, a sculptor, an artist who's a sculptor, creating this beautiful statue. I, for one, am just amazed at the artistic skill that goes into sculpture. I think that's just amazing that people can create these real-life-looking you know, images, people out of clay and marble, and that's just fascinating. Okay, so imagine that going on. An, an artist sculpting a figure. What, what is he or she doing? He or she is looking at a model, right? That's how they're able to sculpt something. Well, we'll think of it this way then. God, the Father, creates humans by looking, forms, them, forms the first man out of dirt, right? He, he's looking at a model to create humans in his own image. The model there is the eternal Son of God because he is the true and original image of God. So what we have then in creation is something like a great king who wants to honor his son by putting images of his son over all of his realm. He wants to honor his son by making these images like his son. And that is exactly what God is doing when he makes the first man and the first woman in the image of his son and then he tells them to go out and be fruitful and multiply and fill the world and subdue it. That is, fill the world with the glory of the beauty of the son. 
Creation is designed to show off the glory of the Son. And in that sense, he is first over all creation. But of course, as you know the story, we haven't done such a good job at that, have we? Humans, instead of showing off the glory of God, the glory of the Son, have co-opted and distorted that image. So yet, we're still as if we have a sticker on ourselves that says, I display the glory of the Son, and yet what we're doing is we're pumping out this filth that doesn't look at all like the glory of the Son. And for this, God is angry at us. And for this, there is a curse. But the good news is that there's another reference to firstborn in this hymn, right? Look at the second reference to firstborn in the second stanza. And he is the firstborn from the dead. He comes to earth and he dies to take the punishment that we deserve for mocking the Son's glory. See that there? And then he rises again from the dead. And in his resurrection life, he is the source and image and pattern of all those who will have resurrection life in him. He is once again exalted as being first over all. Just as the Son was the pattern for humanity in the original creation, so also in his resurrection glory, he is the pattern for all who have new life in him. And so he is first in rank and importance over all. That's just what Paul is saying in that famous passage in Romans 8. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Why? Listen to this. To be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be firstborn among many brothers. We are remade into the image of the Son in his resurrected glory, so that the Son would be most exalted and preeminent over all things. Listen, your salvation is not merely about getting you out of hell and into heaven, as great as that is, okay? But it's about Christ being glorified and seen as first over all. Now, sometimes people struggle with that idea because it sounds to them as if, well, God doesn't love me then as much as I thought he did. Some people are attracted to an illustration of the gospel that I've heard of something like a train conductor who must make a choice between saving a passenger car that is about to go over a cliff or diverting the car, but in the process, killing his son who is playing on the tracks. That, illustration, that illustrates that God chooses us, the passengers in the car, and even loves us, more than his son. I don't think that's right. Now, it's complicated because there is a sense, certainly, in which the father did not spare his son, but gave him up for us. I mean, that's a biblical idea. God gave over his son to the cross for our salvation. But if we zoom out and look at the grand scheme of things, we see that by sending his son to die on the cross, the Father is also loving His Son by positioning His Son to be highly exalted over all things because after obediently dying on the cross, He then is exalted and given a name above every other name. That doesn't mean that His love for us is any less. 
In fact, I think it shows his love even more because he wants to use us then to bring glory to his Son. And what could be of higher honor than to be used to bring glory to that which is of greatest worth? Friends, the beauty of the gospel is not that at the end of the day God loves us above his Son, but that God in his infinite wisdom has made a way that in loving his Son, he can also love us even though we've hated his Son and made a mockery of his Son's image. This is the same story of the noble king who loved his son and wants images of his son throughout the world. But now, instead of just us going out and filling the world and multiplying, we are to go, therefore, and take the gospel to all nations, teaching them to obey everything that Christ commands, which is to say we are once again filling the earth with images of the son, new creation images of the son. And thus is another way that God loves us, by allowing us to join him in his mission of bringing the Son glory. Well, and this leads us to our third and final point, which is the only real point of application I'm going to give you, and that is this. See the beauty of Christ. See the beauty of Christ. I think that's the main thing of what Paul, Paul wants his readers to get with this text, this hymn. I think it's significant that this hymn is poetry, that this section is poetry. What does poetry do? Poetry aims to bring out the beauty of something because of the form in which it is written. When you write poetry, you don't just say something, but you say it in a way that is beautiful, or the form matters. I, for one, am amazed how Paul can use so few words here. This is a short section and yet brings so many profound realities together. Paul is really working with planes of reality, and he's, it's like he's playing with them, and they're doing backflips, and they're colliding, and they're displaying fireworks. It's this amazing display of glory in this hymn. I think we could even say that this hymn, the form of this hymn, illustrates the person of Christ. Because it has two stanzas that I think correspond to the two natures of Christ, God and man, and they come together in the bridge. And this hymn illustrates what for 2,000 years the church has been wrestling with concerning the person of Christ. Two natures, two stanzas, meeting together, coming together. Paul has captured something of the beauty of the incarnation in the form of this hymn. Do you see that? Friends, to be a Christian is not simply to believe that there is such a thing as the Incarnation. But to be a Christian is to see the Incarnation as beautiful. We're not all gifted at writing poetry. I know that I'm not. But how is your life reflecting the beauty of the Incarnation? One of the psalmists says, One thing I ask from the Lord, one thing I seek, Only that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Christ is the Lord, right? That's what this hymn resounds with. And he has come that we may gaze upon him. Are you? Friends, let's work hard to get our theology right so that we can speak about Christ in a way that is true. There is so much precision in the language that Paul has put in this hymn. Every word matters. 
to be sure. Let's learn from that. But in our quest to be true, may we never rush over his beauty. Because if we say it in a way that is true but not beautiful, is it really true? Now, this is the half bonus point at the end. Something to ponder. Let me just leave you with this. This really could be another sermon, but all I want to do is open up another doorway to you from this text so that you can see that there's a whole other reality that we could go to. And that is simply this. When we see that Christ is beautiful, the church is also beautiful. When we see that Christ is beautiful, the church is also beautiful. That must be the case. Why? Because the church, as we see in this passage, is his body. Look at the bridge again. He is head of the body, the church. Now, follow me for just a second here. This reference to the church may have seemed a little bit odd. Because after mentioning the church here, Paul goes on for the rest of the hymn almost as if he hadn't said anything about the church at all. We don't see any other explicit reference to the church throughout the rest of this hymn. But not only that, verse 18, as I've argued, is part of the bridge, which means that it is like the summary of the whole thing. So why is half of the bridge, listen, this is a question to ponder, why is half of this bridge about something that is not mentioned throughout the rest of this poem? Except maybe it is actually mentioned throughout the rest of this poem. Maybe the problem isn't that Paul failed to adequately develop his theme. Maybe the problem is that we have too small a view of the church, and therefore we miss it. The second stanza is all about Christ ruling and reigning over all things to bring about peace and reconciliation to all, to this new world order, right? Where do we see him ruling and bringing peace and reconciliation today? It's hard to see it out in the world, isn't it? But we do see it in the church. The church is the place where we have been reconciled to Christ and to one another, and we come together to be submitted to Christ as our king. And when we do that, friends, we look forward to the day when all of created reality will be reconciled to Christ and consciously submitted to Him as Lord, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You see, the church is not another topic that Paul has just thrown in here. Oh, i got to make this hymn a little bit longer. Here, I'll mention the church. They'll like that. No. Rather, our conscious submission to Christ in the church foreshadows that final, consummate submission to Christ in all things. And it will happen at the end of the age. Do you realize what the church is then? Do you realize that the church is the future reality? End times reality that has invaded the present. That's what the church is. Let me just be autobiographical for a second here. This was important for me to realize. Because there was often a part of me that would answer that question honestly, no. I don't realize that the church is that future end times reality that has invaded the present. I was a pastor for about seven years 
And I loved it. I got to serve alongside of who I think are the most amazing elders on the planet. I saw many evidences of God's grace, so many ways in which people's lives were being changed by the gospel. I loved it. I love and I still love and I miss very much my congregation that I was pastor of down by D.C. But notwithstanding all of that, as a pastor, I had to, almost on a weekly basis, guard my heart from discouragement because so many things didn't seem to work out the way they should have. We, or I should say I, made a lot of stupid mistakes. We as a church just weren't that impressive in many ways. Growth was extremely slow, and we had seasons where we went backwards. I I came to the church, and in nine months, I had grown the congregation from 110 to 55. That's backwards, if you weren't realizing that. He's bragging about how he grew the church. No, I'm... I'm (laughs) But here's what I had to see. When we gather faithfully week after week and consciously submit ourselves to Christ, and when we hear the word of reconciliation and obey it, and when we are reconciled to one another, when we do those things, we as a church foreshadow that final day when Christ will visibly rule and reign over all things. Friends, What I realized is that the church does not have to look impressive by the standards of the world to foreshadow the future glory of Christ. In fact, if it looks impressive by the standards of the world, there's a good chance it's not actually foreshadowing the future reign of Christ. Because didn't Paul say that God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong? And didn't Jesus say that the kingdom is like a mustard seed? Which, is, which starts off small, but when it is full grown, is the tallest of all trees. Now this might speak most clearly to you if you are a church leader. But I think the challenge for all of us, here's the challenge for all of us, is to base our level of commitment to and life within the local church, not just on what we see right before us, However great that might be, and friends, I think it is really great here, but rather to base it upon the future glory when the glory of Christ will be seen in all things. That should be the the basis and standard of our commitment to the church. Our excitement for the church should not derive from the programs or cool conversations that we have, however good they may be. It should be driven by our view of and love for the glory of Christ, which we know will be revealed. You know, politicians today often talk about being on the, quote, right side of history. Do you ever hear that? And that phrase strikes me as a bit odd, because how do they really know where history is going, and do they really have a worldview that guarantees it'll be going in a good direction? However, there is one way that we can be on the right side of history. Because we do know where history is going. And that way is to be in the church. Because the church is the one place where that future glory and reign of Christ is visibly present now. And that is where history is going. So be part of the church. Be reconciled to Christ and trust in him as your only hope of escaping God's wrath. Come into him and into the church. And one day the king will come. 
And his glory will shine, not just dimly and sporadically in various local places, but it will come over all the earth as the water covers the seas. Now, to live in the church in view of that future glory of Christ is scary. It takes us out of our comfort zone, but it is good because he really is the king and he will come. Let's pray.